Hey friends, welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be with you here this Monday. The music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Torn Wells. Make sure you grab a copy of his new album, Citizen of Heaven. I want to tell you about our partner, IJM. International Justice Mission is the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. They work to rescue people out of slavery and sex trafficking and walk with survivors until they are restored and thriving in freedom. It's really been IJM's special privilege, and we feel the same getting to partner with them here and in the TSF Quarantine shows to share the brightest stories of hope with the world and to remind us all on the other side of tragedy, there is hope. And this is one of those stories. This story from IJM is about one family in South Asia who waited 15 years before they were freed from slavery. It's insane how this happened. They were living in poverty and two men came to their village and offered them work on a farm and a cash loan to relocate. And so they took it. And when they began to working, the interest on the loan began accruing. Okay, get this. So the initial loan was about 130 US dollars and it ballooned to $15,000. Not only were the families paid next to nothing, they were abused and poorly fed and slept outside in tents made of old tarps. And it was brutal. And when IJM and local authorities heard about the abuse, they mobilized and planned a rescue operation. But When they arrived, the men and women were afraid to speak up, which I totally get. But fortunately, one of the authorities, a leader of the local Human Rights Commission, empathized with the laborers and helped calm them down and built the trust necessary to empower them to speak up and share the reality of the situation with the police. And when they did, the police arrested the men who'd been holding these families as slaves and they were set free. A total of 50 people, including 20 children, some of whom were born at the farm. This story really shows us that even when like one person with authority aligns their power with the people in need, real life-changing transformation can happen. And listen, here, this is crazy. Are you ready? The rescue happened on March 13th, like one month ago. Just think about it. Like five weeks ago, each of those 50 people were living in slavery, and today they are all free. Isn't that incredible? Listen, take a minute today and read more of these stories of hope and be encouraged. Go to IJM.org slash hope with us. Today's episode is really important to me, as probably most of you, if not all of you know, last week it became public that there was a murdering of a young black man in South Georgia named Ahmad Aubrey in a town that I know really well, Brunswick, Georgia. And before this young man's murder was brought to light publicly for all of us, I'd already gotten to have this conversation with Pastor Eugene Cho. Pastor Eugene has a new book out called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging in Politics. And he also works day in and day out in the advocate space. I wish we'd have gotten to talk to him, you know, today so that we could ask about this exact experience that we have all just had last week. But I still think as you listen, you will hear him teach us how to better advocate for our friends and neighbors. Um, It is really important to me. And y'all know if you've been a friend for a while, you know this is a journey I've been on to learn how to better use, how to use it all, (laughs) my privilege as a white woman in America to help and come alongside and advocate for those who are underprivileged and to speak up particularly for our friends that are of other races and our friends that are mistreated because of that. And with that being said, while our show is called That Sounds Fun, I want you to know that we will also be a place where we talk about justice and where we are vocal where there is injustice. And this story of Ahmad's murder is unjust. And I want to do my part, and I hope we'll do our part together to advocate for people who are experiencing injustice in our world through IJM, through using our voices, through using our phones, through using our social media, and through the friendships that we build in our lives offline. That all being said, here is today's conversation with one of the pastors and men that is teaching me the most about how to advocate well, Pastor Eugene Cho. All right. Hey, thank you for doing this, Eugene. I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. It's a pleasure and a joy. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm going to tell everyone up front, 
you gave me permission to call Eugene. I would call you Pastor Cho because of how much I respect your work and have followed you and been taught by you. But you said it was okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Please, please, seriously, call me Eugene. Okay. Well, the thing I told you ahead of time that our friends know listening is there's only two rules here of who our guests are. Is it somebody I'm already friends with or somebody I wish I was friends with? And ever since probably If Gathering 2017, 18? Yep. You you were on stage and I was hollering from my seat. Mm. I was, yes, sir. Yes. Yes. And ever since then. So this is my big chance. Thank you for doing this. No, I, you know, actually, I do remember meeting you then, and I was a big fan then and have grown to become even a bigger fan. So this is kind of weird. I'm not trying to give you false praise, but in the same way that you mentioned wanting to become friends, I guess now it's official. This is a mutual thing where we are stating publicly, we are (laughs) friends and want to become better friends. Good. I love it. That's great. Tell me about speaking at an all women's conference. Why was that a yes for you? (laughs) You know, it was my first experience speaking at an all-women's conference. And the crazy thing is, a few months before that, one of my prayers has been, God, uh, place me in uncomfortable situations. That was my prayer, because I think as I've been getting older, it's easy to get people to box you in and say, this is what Eugene does or what this person does. And so my prayer was, place me in uncomfortable situations. And then just a month later, I got that invitation And at Uh first I said, this is crazy. I shouldn't do this. Why would I do this? Uh, But I remember that prayer. And also just because I just have a lot of respect for Jenny Allen and for the If Gathering. I love the fact that they hold to the center uh, conviction, discipleship, which I think is so important. Did you think, uh, this is one of the things that I really would love for you to speak into today because there's so many around so many topics, but you know, you prayed that prayer. And then immediately, almost immediately, an invite shows up like that. Mm. Did you go back to the Lord and ask, or did you go, well, that's the answer. Let's go. You know, it, it was going back because, you know, I, I've learned probably as as you do, sometimes you get your share of requests or invitations. And for me, it's not about wisdom, about saying no to bad things, because that's the easy one. For me, it's saying yes, it's saying no to good things to say yes to the most important things. And I have a hard time discerning that. And so for me, I knew it was a good thing, but I had to just make sure and pray, is this the most important thing with limited time and opportunities? And and so just an, an, an occasion to be able to encourage my sisters in Christ. And I think even then, as well as today, there just seems to be just this tension between genders and how leadership talks about gender roles and gender responsibilities. And I wanted to be able to encourage my sisters in Christ that I can't be who I am and the church can't be who the who God has called the church to be without both women and men serving in all facets of leadership. And that's the reason why I mm. said yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. As a as a woman who also is sorting out all the places it's right for me to lead and where Mm. it isn't right for me to lead. Mm. It means a lot to have men partnering with me in that, in the discovery. Cause to me, it has less to do with my womanness and more to do with where, where would God have me flourish as a leader and where do I not flourish as a leader? Cause there, there are some really good leadership opportunities for both of us Mm. that have come to us that are just not the right opportunity. Mm. It's good. It's good. Absolutely. How have you determined what would be good? What What are the right yeses for you in speaking and leadership? And is there, do you have a list you go through or is it literally like sit with the Lord and listen? You know, I think it's the latter at this point. It's about just discernment, about peace, about flourishing and about calling. I mean, obviously there are things that I want to do that's about giving me great sense of joy and flourishing that's in my wheelhouse of convictions. Um, there are, I think, a lot of folks that can speak to certain things. But, you know, for me, the, the aspects, the intersections about discipleship and the kingdom of God that really matter to me is I want to be encouraging younger leaders. I want to be encouraging yeah. women. I want to be encouraging leaders of color. I want to be encouraging conversations around missions, around evangelism, around justice work, around what I consider to be uh, and articulate as the whole gospel that Jesus saves but Jesus is also at work redeeming and restoring this world. So both of these matter. 
it's the whole debate around evangelism versus justice. It's one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to convey that both of these matter. Both of these are essential. And obviously, it means different things in different conversations. But sometimes, at least for me, from my vantage point as a pastor or as a leader, maybe even in Seattle, it feels as if there's this, this debate going on that one matters more than the other. I've had this question asked of me way too many times, enough times that I realize there might be a danger within the larger Christendom. And it goes like this, Pastor Eugene, what's more important, justice or evangelism? And it just concerns me that folks are still asking that question and maybe even at a more elevated pace. And I think there is some confusion. And so we want not just good stories, but I'm trying to contribute good theological, biblical robustness to that conversation. What can you give us a layman's definition of evangelism? Because when my when you when I hear evangelism, what my brain automatically thinks is like the little packets we passed out in middle school. Or yeah. that old program that may still be around, I don't know, called Evangelism Explosion, where people went to people's houses and told right, them about Jesus. Right. What's, yeah, what's a modern I, day definition of evangelism? I mean, I think those methodologies are still around, you know, the, the, the four spiritual laws. And I'm yeah. not knocking those things. I think at the root of it, evangelism, you know, comes from this Greek word, eongelion, which means good news. And it's about mm-hmm. sharing good news. And typically, I think we see evangelism kind of in this old school model, even in modern day layman's term, we see this in an old school imagination where either we're knocking door to door or going to have conversations strictly about, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, is this an important question? Absolutely. It's an important question. I think what I'm trying to contend for is that when we reduce the gospel to only that question, Mm. I actually think it's a limited gospel. It's even a false gospel. And then in the same way, I think a lot of younger folks, and I know this is kind of a a sweeping generalization, but, you know, for you and I, as we travel to different places, we know that particularly younger people, they have a high view of justice work and mercy work and compassion work. And it's great. And so in that same way, I want to ask that community the question, Justice matters, but we can't be timid about also sharing the good news that Mm. Jesus is Lord and Savior and also desires to be in a personal relationship. So it's both personal and communal. It's both personal and structural. It's both evangelism and justice. And we need both of these things for this, this perspective of the whole gospel. So going back to the if gathering, you know, to be able to speak to hundreds or or thousands of women about uh, that beautiful message that Jesus saves, but he's also at work in our world, redeeming, restoring, reconciling the world. That gives me a lot of joy and conviction. um, And that's oftentimes what undergirds the decisions that I make. Yeah, that to me, the older I've gotten in faith and just on the planet, the more I feel like uh, I get closer to God when I hold two opposing things in my hands. Like when I things like not 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 the uh, justice and evangelism are opposing, but a lot of times uh, I would have been taught or would have thought one is the yes and the other is the no or Mm. joy and sadness. One you can feel all the way and the other you should feel none at all. And it just keeps seeming like like Jesus asks us to hold both. He'll bring us both things at the same time. Mm, That's good. Yeah, I'm not sure if your audience can hear me kind of like just moaning in agreement here, but. You know, the, the word that I think of is the word tension. Like yeah. we're, we're called to be faithful in tension. And it's kind of ironic because I think as human beings, we could also acknowledge and admit that tension isn't always the thing that we gravitate towards. We want very <laughs> clear answers, clear yeah. compartments. It's this or nothing else. And I, I think in many ways, when Jesus comes and engages in public ministry, people wanted to box him in or they wanted him to subscribe to their kind of um, worldview, if you will. And I think the kingdom and the tension, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, his ethics, his life, uh, it really embraces faithfulness in the midst of tension. And, and I just think that is the word that we need to think about especially as we grasp with what does it mean to be about the kingdom of God here on this earth? Yeah. 
faithfulness in the midst of tension feels like like that is like dating advice. That is friendship advice. <laughs> that is political advice. I mean, I just feel like that yeah. sentence, I want to write that. I keep a dry erase marker in my bathroom yeah. and write little phrases on my mirror. Right. And faithfulness in the midst of tension feels like that that might be one of the highest callings on us. But it doesn't sell. You know, it's not it's not the no. best it's not the best <laughs> not title sexy. of a book or of a song or a conference. I mean, because I think again, we just want, you know, I've heard many people say, Well, just tell me what you want me to do. Tell us what we should yeah. do. And my response is be faithful in the midst of tension. And yeah. they'll say, Well, thank you for nothing. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> Do you feel like it's a practice of dis- of spiritual discipline and and deepening to practice faithfulness and tension? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it's a marathon. And, and maybe that's yeah. the other analogy that we need is, you know, I think in our culture today, we're so accustomed to kind of the, the quick methodology to everything. And discipleship is a marathon. And especially when you tell someone faithfulness in the midst of tension for the marathon then yeah. it's like a double whammy. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, thank you. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, give me a seven day, give me a 21 day methodology of faithfulness yes. in the concrete and yeah. uh, I'll subscribe to that. But, you know, I think in the midst of it, those are some of the bookmarks that I need in my life. Like I need to be reminded that it's the marathon. It doesn't mean that I can't stop in between and enjoy the markers and moments of that marathon, but I just want to have a marathon perspective. And maybe it's because I'm turning 50 this year that yeah. I'm thinking more about these 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 issues. And then again, tension is that, man, life is just so full of transition. And in that transition, uh, there's just bound to be not just tension amongst people because we're all complex and nuanced, but even tension within my own heart and my own views yes. as they're deepening and changing and what have you. I think that that is a permission you're giving us that I don't know that I've had words for this permission to like, yeah, I bet there are some things in you that are at tension with each other mm. where you love this person, but you don't agree with everything. Mm. Or, or this, you understand where these people are coming from, but you don't agree with what they're doing. And, mm. and so both of them live inside of us. Mm. And that even you saying that gives me permission that there is something not immature, but mature about the faithfulness of even identifying that in myself. Amen. And I, I'm sure we'll get into this topic and conversation, but you know, as we're faithful, then what does it mean to model Christ? What does it model to mean model love and grace and mercy in the midst of these things? I mean, life is a lot more complex than my 21 person first grade class uh, right. many, many years ago. So yeah. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. We're still dealing with COVID-19. You even on the West Coast more severely than we are in Tennessee. How many, how long have you been, as of right now, how long have you been in your home? I have no idea. And that's you my honest counting? answer. See, that's why you're a marathoner. I've, I'm taking no. off every day like I'm a jailbird. Well, I used to. And then after a while, you just lose track. I <laughs> Is today Monday? I think it is Monday. No, I, I've seriously lost track. Uh, first of all, I just want, listeners know how excited I am to chat with you because initially we were supposed to do this in person. I was so excited to go to Tennessee to hang out with you. This pandemic obviously hit and uh, changes, uh, plans have changed and what have you. But we were the first epicenter of COVID-19 here in the United States. And so it's been intense. I think we have been uh, at a stay-at-home shelter order for about five to six weeks. And it will probably continue on for a couple more weeks. So yeah, it's a lot of adjustments, a lot of hardships. But you know, I have to again just be reminded that um, while there have been challenges to our families, to our finances, to all of these things, uh, that in perspective, you know, I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming. I don't have to worry about right. our next month's mortgage payment. And uh, it's just mind-boggling and heartbreaking to know that that is the reality for not just hundreds or thousands, but I think millions of people are living in such fragility right now. So it's an interesting time for us to both express gratitude, but also lament uh, the deep pain that's going on around us. Yeah. Do you feel like we're 
are Christians allowed to feel both of those things? Allowed? If I, I already hear myself and I know your answer, but, but I'm listening to you and I'm going like, yeah, I'm experiencing real pain and loss in my house right now by myself, yeah. not married yet, no kids yet. And yet I am not hungry. I am not, uh, I am not without the basic tenets of what yep. you need to survive. Yep. And there are, and I, I used to teach elementary school. So I've been thinking a lot about children in homes where they are not safe mm. and, and there's nowhere for them to go. Mm. And again, teach me how we carry both of those. How do we find faithfulness in the tension of, yeah, I'm in pain, but my pain isn't that kind of pain. Yeah. And yeah, I'm grateful, but, but how do I, how do we even help people? How, how, how? Sure, sure. You know, when I was uh, 18 years old, I became a follower of Jesus. And at the age of 19, I became a youth director at a church in Sacramento, California. And every single Sunday, I would walk into this small little chapel uh, to help lead youth group, if you will. And there was a sign on top of the door as you entered in. It was a massive sign, huge letterings. And that sign bothered me so much. Like I wanted to literally get up on a ladder and take it down. And I know that whoever built that chapel or that sign meant well, but the sign read, it read this. It said, leave your worries and fears behind before you enter the house of God. Um, And the reason why it bothered me is if we can't bring that to God, then what is the nature of our relationship with God. And yes. it's always bothered me. And sometimes I feel like even in our theology, even today, the songs that we worship, the sermons that we preach, the sermon series that our pastors often do, it always tends to be erring on the side of um, happy, clappy, giddy, hopeful. And obviously as Christians, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be hopeful. I just think that there's lots of room and space for lament and grieving and pain and doubt and questions, because if we can't bring those things to God, I think what we're doing is that we're kind of complicit in fabricating a very false spiritual relationship with God that doesn't have the depth to handle the ups and downs of life. Because we know that there's ups, lots of joyful things, but we also know there's illnesses there's deceit, there's betrayal, there's hunger, there's injustice, there's even death. And so I want to make sure that we tell people that our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior, has room for all of those things. I don't feel like uh, we need permission for like hope because that's, in my opinion, 90% of the messages that we get on Instagram nowadays, on sermons, is be hopeful, be hopeful. In the midst of it, I also want to tell people there is room for deep lament in our yeah. own lives. Like I want to tell a high school senior who's yeah. been told by their pastor, hey, be hopeful, be hopeful. We can have hope. Jesus is Lord. We can still say Jesus is Lord, but man, it sucks that you can't graduate <laughs> on stage. And we lament the fact that there's such a loss of significant moments and memories and and such. And I don't think either of these things betray the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say is that yeah. we need to embrace both. Can you define lament a little bit? Is it is it just sadness? Is there more to using the word lament over saying you're allowed to be sad? Yeah, I, I love that question because I think for many folks, we 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 our perspective of lament is sadness or just tears. And it's actually so much more deeper. It's it's a biblical theological term that speaks about a form of prayer. So lament mm. is a form of prayer. It involves our emotions, which happens to include obviously sadness and grieving. But I think it's a deep state of prayer where we're coming to God. So it's not just us wallowing in self-pity and sadness. There is a source where we can come and bring the fullness of who we are. So the question that I would ask people is, in our relationship with God, can we bring our full, authentic self to God? Or do we always have to be happy and giddy? Jesus is good all the time. Clap our songs. Can we have some A minor songs in our relationship with God? So lament is a form of prayer. 
obviously when you read Psalms, a lot of folks don't realize that one third of all the Psalms happen to be lament prayers. Lamentations is one long, long prayer about lament. Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you have forms of these laments. And the other thing that I would just add to this is the reason why lament, I think, matters so much is that because we're sometimes prone to jump from A to Z real quick, we're we're prone to jump to recovery and we're prone to jump to reconciliation, prone to jump to like joy and hope. I think when we're not sitting in lament, oftentimes the, the transformative work that God does in us happens to be in the valleys of our lives, in the mm. moments of pain and desperation. Right. So we expedite that process. We're actually robbing ourselves of transformative work that God wants to do in us. Uh, and obviously, the other added aspect is to hear that Jesus is with us in our grieving and lament. But when I think about my friends, I have many acquaintances that have been with me in my high moments, in my mountaintops. And I'm not trying to question their friendship. Sure. But the ones that I particularly remember and I deeply appreciate are the friends that have been with me in my valley moments mm-hmm. when oftentimes people grew silent because they weren't quite sure what to do. And not that they said something profound, but the fact that they were with me in those moments, in my tears, in my anguish, I mean, I'll never forget those friendships. Yeah. And it feels like even you're talking about the cutting short of a a season of lament or a time of lament. I mean, even so all of us can relate to that because all of us want out of our houses to some Mm -hmm. degree. I mean, some people like it more than others, but everybody wants at this point, we're weeks into wanting our normalcy back. And I wonder what you would say about the moment you want to get out and the perseverance of what could be two more weeks into this. What could we know about God if we persevere through? Well, I I think it's about wanting to just be as open as possible, knowing that God is able to speak and God is present and God desires to teach and God desires to form us in all moments, in all situations. And again, we, we can just name and acknowledge that our inclination is normalcy. We want things to be comfortable. We can name those things. But it doesn't mean that God can't speak and is not speaking during these moments of trials. And I think, you know, the other added aspect about lament is that, yes, we can bring our full selves to God. But as we're lamenting our own situation, it's about that note of perspective. We we get a different perspective on things like, wow, I don't have to worry about my next meal. And then when you see miles and miles of cars that are waiting for one or two bags of groceries, I think it not only changes our perspective, but it deepens our empathy and our pain on behalf of others as well. And then we ask the question, what more or what can I do to be a source of encouragement and blessing unto others? So it's not just about me, myself, and I, and my own lament, because we have profound perspective on things. And uh, and I'm sure many people have seen these images of food banks and lines across and around corners and cars lined up to hear stories across the world of people and nations that are in complete lockdown. And so they're just not able to get food. And so they're not, I mean, this is this is hardcore serious, but they're dying not because of the virus, but they're dying literally because of starvation. And yeah. so you know, again, I'm not trying to, to be a Debbie Downey here, but I think it's just a reminder for us uh, that as we're speaking about tension, so much of our life is tension. And how do we not err on just going to one extreme and parking ourselves and be completely oblivious to the other? Because I think there is a danger of going towards the season of lament and all that we're doing is just drowning ourselves in lament and we don't see hope. You know, we're a couple of weeks post Easter Sunday, and this isn't my phrase. I don't know who originated this particular phrase, but it's always meant something to me that we're resurrection people living in a broken Friday world. And mm. that speaks to me of that tension that yeah. we should never forget that we're resurrection people, but we're not living in a resurrection world. We're living right. still very much in a broken Friday. And even more uh, frustratingly, at least to me, 
in a silent Saturday world where we don't have all the answers to all the questions that arise in our minds and hearts, especially during these very precarious, unprecedented times. What are some ways, like when I'm thinking about the people that are waiting in those lines for food, what can I do in Nashville, Tennessee? Like what are some ways that we can we can tangibly help? Yeah. Do you know? So a, a few things come to mind. And, and, and the first thing is, I think we should just name it. Like yeah. we can't discuss anything that we're not willing to name or have conversations about. So in other words, we can't have that conversation in our own heads. And I think a lot of times, we engage in our discipleship in our own minds. We're like talking about hypothetical situations in our own head. And I would say just name it, articulate it, give voice to it, and then speak with one, two, three, four, speak with a group of people that very mm. question. Hey, have you been thinking about this question? What could we do in our limitations, in our homes, in our limitations? Have you thought about what we could do? And would you be willing to discuss that with me? That's what excites me about the church is that we're taking, and this is why I think you cannot be a follower of Jesus alone. Uh, we were never meant to mm. follow Jesus alone. We're, we're meant to do it together uh, with other sisters and brothers, like-minded, like-hearted, that we can encourage and also challenge one another. And so I love having these conversations with people. And so for me, I've been thinking a lot about locally, uh, what can we as a family do, first of all? What can we do in our own neighborhood among our own yeah. block or two? What can we do in our own larger neighborhood? Like there's a food bank in our area. And so as a family, we're saying, hey, you know, I know that it's limitations and it just seems to be about money, but right now money really helps. And so let's make a donation to our local food bank. I just recently started as the president-elect of an organization called Bread for the World in Washington, yeah. D.C. And so the work that we do is around advocacy, around engaging lawmakers. So we've been urging our members and our followers to contact their lawmakers and say, please, would you be willing in all the stimulus bills as we care about small businesses, as we care about bailouts? And I'm for these things. But the work that Bread for the World does is about let's make sure that in all the advocacy and all the lobbying that goes on, we've got to advocate for the poor, the hungry, the forgotten, the marginalized, mm -hmm. the immigrants, the migrant workers, those who are on food stamps, on the SNAP program. Uh, we need to speak up on their behalf. So I would urge people like, that really, really matters. And then yeah. through one day's wages, the work that we do on international level. We are trying to raise a half a million dollars right now, $500,000 to partner with on the ground partners that are doing work to help those who are very, very vulnerable. I'll share just share a crazy statistic. Yeah. You know, in the United States, there's a lot of conversations, obviously, about uh, ventilators and the need for more ventilators. There are countries yeah. around the world that have three for ventilators for their entire country. And this is the reason why so many countries right now are so anxious and fearful, because if it were to spread in the same way that it's being spread in Europe and Asia and in the United States, it's just very, uh, very uh, scary to think about what the implications are. And that's the reason why they've chosen to go into complete lockdown. People can't even move. And you'll hear yeah. these or see these images of people being beaten if they're out in the streets and what have you. So uh, those are the three things that we as a family are trying to do. But yeah. I would love to encourage people. It's not like we're not on Zoom having conversations with people. Talk about right. your favorite movie. <laughs> talk about your favorite books. It's all good. I'm not knocking those things. Yeah. Do all of that stuff, but also just talk about, hey, what are some creative ways that we might be able to partner together uh, to be light and salt of the world? Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation to tell you about KiwiCo. Now, listen, y'all know I love my mini BFFs, and I know a lot of you listening have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, cousins. If you think it's impossible to get your kids to put down their phone or a video game and do something that's good for the brain, you are wrong. It is possible. Let me take a second and tell you about KiwiCo. It's a science and art subscription box for kids, tested by kids, and it is 
more fun than any game that can play. I was surprised how much we love this. Okay, so here is the box we got. We got the Tinker Crate Hydraulic Claw. And I went over with the kids. And I'm I'm not kidding, y'all. I was a little bit stressed when I opened and saw all the pieces. And the directions were so easy. The kids absolutely loved it. There's the ability to build three um, hydraulic claws. And we did the first one. And it was pretty easy. I mean, I they would hand me the pieces. I would kind of tighten them. They would tighten the little brads. And there's water involved. Anyway, we made the first one. And as soon as we were done, I kind of thought... Okay, is that it? And one of, and one of the kids goes, "Can we do another?" And I was like, "Yeah, we can do another. There's three of them." And we ended up making all of them and each kid got their own hydraulic claw. It was and then we walked around picking stuff up on the porch. I mean, it was so so fun. Your child can get super cool hands-on science and art projects delivered to their door every month. And what kind of kid doesn't love getting snail mail, you know? KiwiCo is redefining play and hands-on projects that build confidence creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. In fact, when you go on the website, when they go through the lines of different things you can make, they have it by age. And like half of them are 16 plus or up to 104 years old. So I think that's most of us listening. You can get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com slash that sounds fun. Again, that's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash that sounds fun. I hope you'll try it. I think y'all really think they're fun. And now back to the show with Pastor Eugene. I was really moved a couple of weeks ago in Nashville at the beginning of April. The newspapers and the TV stations all said, hey, if you're not on food stamps, can you just wait a couple of days? Mm. And I thought, man, what a very simple, I mean, it gives me goosebumps just saying it to you, but what mm. a very simple sacrifice I'm using in air quotes mm. to go like, Hey, if you're not on food stamps, just give us the first four days of the month for mm. everybody to get what they need. And then, mm. especially as we're limited on who can go to the grocery store, when, how about if you're not on food stamps, just wait. And I thought, man, it, that that's the kind of stuff that if you'll, if you'll, if the world will tell us, we'll do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and I think it also just humanizes the story that it's a yeah. real thing. I mean, this is not just some, some, a person on food stamps, in another state, we're talking about people in our churches, on our blocks, yes, yes. Uh, even within our own circles of friendships that we might not know of. My wife and I and our two, two girls many years ago, now we have three kids, but many years ago, this is probably about 20 years ago, but we really needed and depended on food stamps 20 years ago. It was a really hard time. We were about to plant our church called Quest Church. Things didn't work out as we had intended. I found out very quickly that a master's of divinity degree, even from a fine institution like Princeton Seminary, it was basically useless to society and nobody would hire us. And next thing you know, we had this ambition to plant a church and unemployed, couldn't pay our bills. And so we got on food stamps. And for that season of one year, it it helped us out so much. It's probably one of the reasons why issues of poverty and hunger it matters to me. My parents were born in North Korea, so they understood stories of deep, abject, extreme poverty. You know, During this time, we're always saying we're in this together. And I believe it. It's true. But we should also acknowledge it's impacting us differently. Even though we're in it together, it's impacting us differently. And I think it would make our hearts so much more deeper. It would make our hearts more aligned to God's heart if we took some time to go deeper in the stories that we're hearing about other people. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about your job transition? I think it's so interesting going to the new nonprofit in DC. Yes. I'm, and I'm just anxious and nervous. I'm petrified. I'm also grieving because after 24 yeah. years of living in Seattle, this is the only home that we've known. You know, about, uh, about 14, 15 months ago, my wife and I stepped down from the church that we planted. It's an amazing church called Quest Church, special church, special pastors, amazing people. One of the most difficult decisions that we've ever made in our life. And I told this church I had to, I felt convicted to fire myself because I was just way too comfortable. And the church would never fire me because I'm the founding pastor and they love me, all that kind of stuff. But as I was moving towards turning 50, I was really wrestling with the question, God, I know that my days, my years 
only you know what those are. But in my mind, I thought I had maybe 15 robust years left. And so I'm praying, God, how would you want me to spend those 15 years? And I wasn't quite sure what it looked like, but I really wanted to encourage pastors and missionaries around the world. And I wanted to advocate for those who are poor and hungry in some way or the other. And so I'll continue doing that with One Day's Wages. But Bread for the World, it's just a very unique opportunity and situation. It's probably one of the more well-known Christian advocacy organizations. And all they do is advocacy. They're engaging in the hard space of D.C. around grassroots activists around the country. And we're trying to engage lawmakers as respectfully as possible, reminding them that we need to hold to the center of our country those who are poor and hungry and vulnerable. And we know that oftentimes it's become overly politicized. And so we're trying to, again, approach these things from a biblical theological perspective. Unashamedly, we're a Christian organization. So we're speaking to our lawmakers from that vantage point that as Christians and the Capital C Church, we care about these issues and we want to urge that you uh, hear the concerns of those who are poor and hungry. One thing that I'll just say is, you know, everybody has a voice and, and we know that, but not everyone is heard. And that's part of the work of advocacy. Uh, we don't want to speak on behalf of others. We're trying to simply elevate their plight, their stories. Uh, because sometimes, you know, as you know, in our current context and culture, it's very easy to have these sweeping generalizations about a certain segment of people. Do you think, I mean, your new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, is all about politics. Were were these things happening at the same time, or was God just weaving this and you didn't know until the end? They were not happening at the same time. You know, the book started about two years ago. I, I quit writing it four times in the midst of that two-year process, and we can talk wow. about that later. And Bread for the World, it really began about maybe six months ago, and um I would never, never have imagined working in D.C. I don't like politics, even though I've written a book about politics, and this is an organization that does work around advocacy. I will be in suits every single day. That gives me nightmares. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it just was not even registering on my imagination. And so when I interviewed with Bread for the World, I didn't pursue it. They had asked me if I would consider it. I said 95% no. But out of respect for the current president, David Beckman, who's someone that I deeply admire, I said I'd be open up, open for a conversation. And so one conversation became a second and a third and, and ongoing. And next thing you know, July 1, I'll be beginning this. And you know, I, I'm particularly excited about, you know, it, it's, a, it's an organization that engages the capital C church, but I'm particularly excited about engaging evangelicals for whatever that, that word means. And I'm doing air quotes right now. Right. Um, because I think for some within the church, in the same way that we don't like to touch politics because it's not spiritual. And for those that do, advocacy has never really been part of our imagination of what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus and good citizens. Uh, we're good with compassion work. We're good with raising money. We're good about, but when it comes to actually advocating, writing letters, calling our lawmakers, uh, marching on streets, um, these things have been essential in the formation of the church in, in decades and generations past. But I think today there is a large segment within this broad evangelicalism that just, they don't know that advocacy really, really matters. So it's a big task, but it's a task that I'm hoping to engage with the Capital C Church. That that will be fun to watch and be a part of. I just am excited to see, there's just no accident the way the Lord is tying all this together from someone watching your life on the outside like it's a movie. Hmm. You just go like, oh, he wrote a book about politics and how to be a good citizen and had no idea that while he was writing that for years, that God was setting him up to move to D.C. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's uh, I have been overwhelmed the last month. Uh, I started uh, part time onboarding training, and it's been just an overwhelming process. And the good news is that it's put me on my knees on numerous occasions. And I'm realizing that 
apart from prayer, apart from dependence on the Holy Spirit, apart from reliance on the church, it's an impossible task. And maybe that's exactly where God wants me and us to be. Because oftentimes, you know, we can just pride ourselves in our connections, our network, our expertise. And it's been a long time. I'm in a long time. And this sounds really arrogant. It's been a long time where I don't quite know what I'm doing. And it's really just forced me to say, Jesus, please help me. Uh, I need you. I need you so desperately. And it's a scary prayer, but in a strange way, it's also speaking life into, uh, if I can be honest, it's speaking some life into areas of my life that have been more about dry bones. Yeah. Will you talk for just a minute about, uh, we talk a lot around here about hearing God. What does it look like for each of us to hear God? How is it different? And and obeying him. And and like you're saying, there's some grief and obedience. Will you talk about, I don't know that we've ever had a good conversation on here about what it looks like to grieve things that you are losing when you're choosing obedience to God. And it's not just, I'm sad that I don't get to sin anymore. It's not mm. that kind of, it's like, no, I'm, I'm choosing to follow God and therefore I'm leaving things that I really love. Will you talk about that grief for a minute? Sure. Well, you know, I suspect this, this could be probably its own podcast or a series of podcasts, a conversation in itself. You know, I'm not sure if what I have to contribute will make any sense because I'm actually in that season of grieving right now. There are moments my wife and I, we go on walks several times a day now, but even po- or pre-COVID-19, it's one of our big spiritual rhythms to go on walks. And we have been there have been moments where we've just started crying, um, even though we believe with confidence this is what God is calling us to do. And I don't want to over-exasperate the T word, but I think this is another example of that tension, that we can have confidence that God is ushering us into something, and we have peace and even joy in the midst of it. But simultaneously, transitions never happen where one door smoothly closes and all your emotions are nicely packaged and then you're ushering into a next chapter. It's not Literally like never. That. I don't know. If anyone has mastered that, you write that book. It'll be bigger than Enneagram. <laughs> and so it, it's not like that at all. And so no. we're, we're constantly moving in and out, ebbs and flows, mountaintops and valleys. And I think what's been meaningful for us. Two things. One is each other, like the people that have walked with us. Like That doesn't stop from one moment to another. So obviously walking with my wife, our kids, close confidants who've been with us for 25 years in all high seasons, low seasons, that's been really helpful. Um, and I just, again, think about friends of my life who didn't always have the right words or the perfect words to say to me, but they were there. And in some ways, if there are any pastors or leaders that are listening to this podcast, I, I, I genuinely think the most powerful sermons that we give, I, I'd be shocked if people remembered more than a handful of sermons that we've given over our lifetime, but they will remember when we've been with them in the lowest moments of their lives, at the hospital, at the funeral, in moments of hurt and betrayal and grief. So and the second thing I think is just our our reliance on the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want to over-spiritualize, but I certainly don't want to under-spiritualize the significance of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's not my like cop-out default spiritual answer. The Spirit of God is God's presence with us, our counselor, our comforter, our convictor. We need the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I think it's just been trying to walk with the Holy Spirit and leave plenty of time to listen and be still before God. Yeah. I um it feels like a real honor that you are willing to talk about that in the middle. It is always so hard to talk about something when you're right in the middle of it. But it also, for all of us listening, it gives us a gives us words for things we're feeling, but it also reminds us how to pray for y'all as you transition over the next year and and fully make DC your home. Um and you'll be closer in time zones, Eugene. I'll just pop right. up there. 
It'll be fine. Let's talk about combining these conversations of, and your book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, literally gives 10 commandments on how to be a better citizen in politics. At the same time, has COVID-19 changed politics to you or has it not? And, And how do we look into an election year with all of this going on at the same time? Because it feels like in the last seven days, for me, the narrative has shifted and I feel like it's getting politicized instead of just health focused. Sure. Yeah, it's very sad. You know, um, you know, obviously I want to navigate this conversation wisely because when listeners ever, whenever they hear the word politics, they feel like uh, some, a guest in the podcast or a politician or a pastor may have an agenda and you know, ultimately, the the biggest point that I'm trying to make in this book is that our allegiance should never be to a politician. Right. It should never be to a political party. It doesn't mean that you can't incline or be or gravitate towards a party, but I just think we have to just make sure that our ultimate allegiance is never to these things. It should be about the kingdom of God. And so, my perspective, even though I know I have my blind spots, I know I have my imperfections is how do we articulate uh, kind of ground rules or framework to help engage politics? So I'll take a step back. I wrote this book for for three types of audience, three types of readers. I think there are some folks that have abandoned politics altogether, maybe because they're exhausted, which again, I get it. Maybe they feel like uh, it's they've grown so cynical that it has no usage. Uh, They feel like it's just overly toxic. But there's also a group of people that have altogether abandoned politics because in their theological construct, they don't believe that politics is spiritual. And therefore, I'm not going to engage in politics. So that's one audience. There's a second audience that I'm speaking to, and it's the group that's overly obsessed with politics, whether or not they can admit it or see it. They believe that politics is the cure-all. It's the answer to Mm -hmm. all things. And as a result, they'll sometimes engage in practices or words and justify it everything because of politics. Another word for that is idolatry. Uh, It's a dangerous idolatry. And then there's a third group of people that want to care, are trying to, but just don't quite know how to do it. And even though the book is certainly not a perfect book, I'm trying to give people 10 practical commandments, frameworks to engage these things without compromising our integrity, to be faithful in tension. Here's that phrase again. Yeah. Um, and to, again, ensure that politics matters, not because it's the totality of all the answers to all things, but I make the case that politics matters because it informs policies that impact people. And so I'm grateful that in the women's suffrage movement, for example, yes, it was a larger cultural movement, but it was a movement within the church as well. There were Christian women and men, but mostly Christian women that were so convicted about their worth and value theologically and biblically. And if you were to hear some of the criticisms that they received during the women's suffrage movement within the church, instigators, they were disruptors, they were all of these horrible things, but they believed that it mattered because it was impacting not just them, but their sisters, their mothers, their daughters. And that's the reason why politics matters. So it is a hard conversation. Has COVID-19 changed it? I wouldn't say that it's changed it. I would simply say that it's been very consistent with some of the bad nature of politics. And I don't want to give this sweeping generalization about all politicians and all politics, but I think we can all agree that we can all and have to do a little better. We just have to model more civility, more kindness, more respect, more empathy, more willingness to listen to others. And then as we're having these discussions, we know that decisions have to be made. And so what does it mean for Christians to be about the common good? I'll give you one example about what does it mean for the common good. It's a really simple example. But, you know, when COVID-19 hit the entire, not just the nation, but around the world, there were some churches in conflict about do we close our worship services or not? 
in most places, it wasn't mandated. It was a suggestion. If you, services over 50 people, we want to urge you not to gather. And when we choose to close our public worship services in person down, it's not because we lack faith. And it's not because we're afraid of our own health. But I think this is what it means to be for the common good and to work yeah. for the peace of our city. Like that's, that's our theological framework. The reason why Christians and Christian leaders and pastors should have been on the front lines encouraging these things is because we want to be people who, yes, hold to our biblical views and convictions, but we can also be working for the common good and seeking the peace of the city. Oh man, I we prayed that verse last Sunday at church. Seek the peace of th- seek the peace of the city you live in, because mm. if it prospers, you will prosper. That's right. Like That's just right. how and it is. It's that same thing you're saying about lament. Of if we only lament thinking about ourselves, we're missing the opportunity to turn it to think about the common good. And that is the same with politics. If we just sit in what we feel and don't think about common good, uh, Michael Ware said it last week on on the Q conference where he said, we don't vote. You're not going to get your exact preferences when you're voting. Mm. You are voting on behalf of the common good. Mm. And that was good language for me to go like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to vote for the person that does every single thing I like. I need to vote for the one that thinks about my neighbors. Good luck finding that person. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. And I, and I think that's part of, you know, part of the concern is that, you know, I, I don't want the church to go to bed with political parties. And in that process, we, you know, yes, we have to think about the common good, but it would concern me if we're simply um, engaging with the powers to be that simply sprinkle on Jesus, and yet we're not committed to the parallel of living and adopting the heart and character of who Jesus is. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. I mean, it's the faithfulness and the tension. It is very complicated for me, Eugene, to know how to handle politics well as an Annie, much less as an Annie F. Downs who's hosting a podcast where people look for information and thoughts. It is it is hard to know how to balance that tension because no matter who you bring on on either side, people feel like you're being unfaithful hmm. to have a person with an opinion. Hmm. How do we how do we learn to how do I lead that well? How do I lead well from this spot? Well, uh, read my book. Uh, make sure make sure folks yes. get the book. <laughs> yeah. No, you know I I think for me it's it's this the fact that you're asking that question is everything. The fact that we can embrace the tension and not say, you know what, this is the exact one concrete way. Because obviously we want to be faithful to Jesus. But in a broken Friday and silent Saturday world, it is very complex and messy and nuanced. And it can be frightening at times. And so what I tell people is that because we know that we live in a broken Friday, silent Saturday world, we shouldn't expect politics to be clear-cut and concise and perfectly packaged as well. And this is the reason why I think we have to remind ourselves, don't forget who we are and who we serve and what we're about. Mm. We're followers of Jesus. We worship Jesus. We're about his kingdom. We're about his character. And we have to give ourselves and others some grace as we navigate that messy, choppy, chaotic waters. I think somewhere along the line, we've been so obsessed with wanting to be right and wanting to Mm. be perfect and and not just politics, just in general, that the margins for space and grace seems to dwindle more and more. And so politics, we've reduced it to who's with me and who's against me, who's for me and who's against me, who are my allies and who are my foes. And there's only those two compartments. And so what I would tell people is this, I think there are people on the extremes of the political spectrum that have adopted this like for me or against me. But I actually think contrary to what we might feel, because we're only inundating ourselves with maybe news stations or media or articles that extrapolate on the extremes, we don't give enough time or attention to a large group of people somewhere in between that's trying to learn to be faithful in that tension. Right. 
I actually right. think that group is larger than we can imagine. There are those who, at least verbally and at least externally, they know exactly what they're for. They know exactly what they're against. They know who's with them and against them. They know all the talking points. But I think there's a lot of folks, especially followers of Jesus, that aren't represented in media, that aren't represented by our traditional religious or political pundits that um, are trying to engage this with heart and empathy and faithfulness and, and timidity and courage and all of the above. And so I think the fact that you bring guests in with different viewpoints and perspectives who don't have it all together, it really, it pastors us. It pastors me. It pastors your listeners. And, and we have to keep doing that and make that more of a, um, more of the majority than the minority. It does feel like that. That's what I experienced with the, well, thank you for your kind words. And that's what I experienced with the last election. I'm afraid of this election is that I won't feel like anyone is, is on my team because Mm. I'll feel like, well, I, I I don't know, not to that and no, not to that and no, not to that. And then because they're, because the silent majority is silent, Mm. (laughs) you feel like you're alone in it. So how, how can we express our opinions politically without being a jerk. I mean, we're going to read the book, but is there like a, is it ending most statements with a question mark? Is that how we do this? Or do we lay out some rules in our friend groups before October gets here or what do we do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so a a few practical suggestions that I would, I would say, you know, one is we need to talk about it. We can't make this a taboo conversation that we hold behind anonymous avatars on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, that's just nonsense. And sometimes people do that, you know, that that's our our engagement and we're being formed. Yeah. So we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it in our families. We have to talk about it in our small groups. And I think we should even talk about it among our churches as well. Now, there have been some pastors who have pushed back on me and they say, hey, you know, you shouldn't have written this book and we shouldn't be talking about this. Oh, wow. And, and my, my polite, respectful response to them is if we're not shaping our congregants, if we're not discipling our church, you best understand they're being shaped and discipled by others. Right. And I would rather... And this is not me harping on, I'm not trying to demonize cable news, but I would rather our church be discipled by our pastors who are imperfect, who are also navigating these spaces, but I would rather them be discipled by our pastors and churches rather than CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. So we've got to talk about this. But I think when we do have these conversations, we do need some sort of a, a framework. We need some guidelines to help shape us. And some of those guidelines is that first, we have to make sure that we can't dehumanize and demonize people that we disagree with. Sometimes we end up dehumanizing the very people we disagree with. And in doing so, we become the very things that we criticize in other people, but we just don't see it. And so now we have this perpetual cycle of dehumanizing that's going on. We need to learn to listen. I think we've lost the art of listening because we've been so obsessed with wanting to be right or wanting to like bully people into submission. And so what I tell people is it's, I don't know of a single story where someone's views were radically transformed by a Facebook dialogue or a Twitter thread. It's just, it happens around a dining table. Jesus performs amazing miracles. We can talk about at length the supernatural miracles that he does. In my opinion, one of the most compelling, fascinating, beautiful, countercultural things that Jesus does is here's Jesus, God, the Son of God, breaking bread with human beings made of flesh and bone. That's just mind boggling. And so yeah. let's not minimize the importance of breaking bread and eating with people we disagree with and choosing to say, you know what? We might disagree on these things, but let's have that conversation. In the book, I talk about a a movement. It's not a Christian movement, but it's an organization called MADA, which stands for Make America Dinner Again. And it was two Asian American women who were so distraught by the presidential election results in 2016 
And so they didn't vote for Trump and they were distraught by the election results. And they were just, again, just stunned and broken about it. And then they decided, you know what, we want to talk about this with friends who voted for Trump. And they realized they didn't know a single person in their network of friends that would have voted for Trump. They didn't know a single person. And so they did something pretty courageous. They put out on social media this vision of wanting to gather together with a small group of people. Everyone brings a dish and we're wanting to have a discussion on politics. We're not here to accuse or vilify or demonize. We just want to better understand each other. And it started a movement where now there are these MADA chapters all around the country, some that are formed around the world. I joined mine in Seattle. And we had lots of very intense discussions about everything and anything. And we didn't solve everything and anything, but there's just something about the table that brings us together. And we can say, you know what? You're actually not as horrible as sometimes my imagination has set itself out to be. I think that's the start. You know, and I'm not saying yeah. it's going to solve everything. But we can't love our neighbors if we don't know our neighbors. And I think when the Bible says to love your neighbors, I think it's a really important point for us to really stress that to love your neighbors means that we're called to love our neighbors, including and especially those that don't look like us, think like us, feel like us, even worship like us. And certainly this is so hard that even vote like us as well. Yeah. Here's what I would love to do because we are running out of time. Can we? I would love for us to stop over on YouTube and keep going a little bit on advocacy because yep, I feel like sure. that's a that's something that everybody can kind of agree on. No matter where you stand on voting, there you want to help influence. So let's hop over there and do that if that's okay. We'll do let's that do next. It. All right. Okay. The last question we always ask though, Pastor Eugene Cho, because the show is called That Sounds Fun. Tell me what you do for fun. Oh man, I am a fun person. No, anyone that says that is not a fun person. Anyone that has to (laughs) preface their answer by saying I'm a fun person. You know, uh, I love the outdoors. I love the outdoors. And I just wish I could be doing more of it, Um, certainly during this current situation. But even before it, I sometimes love the idea of the outdoors more than actually engaging in it. But the outdoors, hiking, I'm trying to get into some some hunting, yeah. some crossbow hunting. I know it's kind of weird. And I'm a huge fisherman. Um, and so I love fishing. And whenever I get a chance, I'll be out in the waters fishing. Oh, see, those aren't weird answers. You don't have to preface your fun with weird. That's totally acceptable answers. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Friends, isn't he great? My gracious, I can't wait to have him back. We are for sure going to have Pastor Eugene back before the election in November just to give us some more words, maybe follow up on some of this advocacy conversation. So, of course, you can send me um, Twitter, Instagram, however you want to, the best way you can think of to send me some questions if you'd like me to do some follow-up questions, particularly with Pastor Eugene. Again, grab a copy of his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging in Politics. If you need anything else from me, I'm embarrassingly easy to find Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, my house, anywhere you may need me. That is how you can find me. Thank you for joining us on these kind of shows. Thank you for walking this um, learning path with me. I know I am not an expert at justice work. I am not an expert at advocating for other people, but I am learning and I just If it's going to be learning in front of you or being silent, I want to learn in front of you. We just can't be silent, friends. We can't be silent. So I um, am grateful for your partnership in this and the way you guys respond to these shows that have some challenging conversation in them. So y'all are great friends. I'm really thankful that we're learning together. I think that's it for me today. You guys stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. I'll do the same. And we'll see you back here on Thursday with our good buddy, Mr. Luke Norsworthy. You guys have a great week.